Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. My main job, I, I blew the hawk a little bit, but my main job was the ferret handler. I was the ferret girl. <laughs> they have a nickname for me, and they actually call me um, Americarid because they say I'm so Americanized with camo and, you know, ball caps. The producer called me and said, we really like what you do, and we think that this will make really interesting TV because we're actually going to couple you with someone who's anti-hunting. When I go hunting now, that's the ethos I take with me. You know, whatever whatever this hunt's gonna throw at you, you pull your big girl pants up and you get on with it. Something that you're gonna go and hunt maybe in six months, a year's time is actually affecting your life right now in a positive way. That in itself's a really cool challenge and, a, and I think a really cool lifestyle. Hi, I'm Rachel Carey, and you are listening to A Living Country in the City. Y'all ready for your dose of flyover state spirit? Straight from the concrete jungle? Well, put down your latte and pull on your boots. It's time for Living Country in the City. Hey, y'all, welcome to episode 85 of Living Country in the City. Want to say a big thank you to all y'all that have been sticking with me through hunting season and really through my move and everything. You know, I know I haven't been releasing episodes as often as I normally do, and I want to get back up to that. Uh, things have just been a little bit crazy with, like I said, the move and hunting season and work and all of that. So I'm hoping to start catching up, start getting back to releasing once a week. So I appreciate y'all for sticking with me. If y'all are enjoying the podcast, really want to see me get back to releasing a ton of episodes, I would appreciate it if you could head on over to my support page. That's livingcountryinthecity.com slash support. There's lots of options there that really help me out as far as growing the podcast, being able to release these episodes. You know, this podcast is largely supported by you guys, and there's lots of options on that support page, how you can really become part of the Living Country in the City team. There's simple stuff such as leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher that is huge and really helps the podcast visibility. Also, if you all wanted to take the next step, you can pick up some Living Country in the City merch from my store, or you can head on over to my Patreon page where you can contribute financially and really earn some awesome rewards along the way. And it doesn't even have to be that much. Even a dollar a month helps out more than you know. So make sure you all check that out at livingcountryinthecity.com support. Also, want to give a big shout out to Sawyer Products for their continual support of the podcast. Y'all, I have been using their products nonstop throughout this entire season, from their gravity filtration systems on my Colorado elk hunt to their bug sprays, especially when I was down in Arizona and those mosquitoes were thick as honey. It was crazy. Y'all, they have everything you need. It's all made for the outdoorsman in mind. Check them out. You need that water filtration, sunscreen, first aid, insect repellent, all of that simple stuff that really keeps you all in the outdoors for longer. So check them out at Sawyer.com. 
All right, y'all. Now for today's episode, we are heading the furthest away that I have ever recorded a podcast. We are flying all the way over the pond to talk to Ms. Rachel Carey all the way over in the UK. We have a great conversation talking a little bit about everything, so hope you all enjoy this one. All right. Well, another episode of Living Country in the City. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time today to hop on. Thank you so so much for having me, um, especially now that I know that I'm the first um, UK guest. Absolutely. All the way across the pond. So uh, once again, yeah, if, uh, if we need a translator, we'll have to call someone up, right? <laughs> <laughs> None of your friends. <laughs> yeah, and uh, all my friends are even thicker act- accented. But uh, anyway, so why don't we uh, start with a little just an intro about yourself, how you got your start in the outdoors and hunting. Um, this is quite an easy one, um, quite an easy story for me because it was a very um, kind of simple and pure form of um, the outdoors for me. So when I was little, my dad um, had basically had a friend who flew birds of prey and it's something that dad wanted to get into. So he eventually got his own bird of prey. It was a Harris hawk and he basically brought that home um and I was a little kind of skinny eight-year-old uh little girl but I was always a tomboy so I always liked kind of playing in the outdoors making dens at home where we had a little bit of land at the time um and dad and I flew the hawk together so I don't know if you have um I don't know if you have ferrets in in the states like the little I I know we do I don't know if we have like wild ferrets i'm kind of curious whether or not i know people some people keep them as pets but uh i don't know if we have them out in the wild here i'm gonna have to look that up yeah so they make ferrets actually make really good pets but over here in the uk and i don't know if you do the same in the states um we actually use them to hunt rabbits with oh wow yeah so so you basically take the ferret and you put it down a rabbit warren um you and you net the other holes in the warren and basically what the ferret does is is kind of drives the rabbit out of the out of the rabbit hole so you get a rabbit that that bolts out of the hole and there's a different there are different techniques that we use um to hunt rabbits using ferrets so you can actually have people stood with shotguns that await the bolting rabbit and shoot them with shotguns um but the way we used to do it we used to fly the hawk so once the rabbit bolted out of the rabbit hole the hawk basically flew down um, obviously got a hold of the rabbit and then I'd go over again, little skinny girl, um, and kind of throw my game bag over it and take the rabbit from the hawk and dispatch the rabbit. So for me, it was very primal and it was for no other reason really, other than, um, my, my father came from a really kind of poor mining community. Um, so he was still in the kind of time of his life where, He'd not really built a business up, um, and it was just a really good, cheap way to kind of obtain meat for us back then. So it was just the really basic, quite simple form of it was to put food on the table. That is okay. That's just really cool. I have always, I, there was this thing a few years back where uh, I was at work and we had this big tent set up. Uh, I, I help put on music festivals. And so we had this big catering tent set up and a hawk actually flew into the catering tent, a little baby hawk, and got stuck there. Ever since that, I've been obsessed with uh, wanting to run hawks. I did all this research and it's just not something that's within my reach at the time because at least here in the States, you have to apprentice under someone for, I think, four years. And it's a, it's a very expensive process, but that is... Super, super interesting to me because uh, I've just been, it's it's funny you say that just because I've been obsessed with that for the past several, uh, probably two or three years. It's a really, really cool way of hunting to actually, to, to work alongside an animal. I know people obviously work dogs. Um, unfortunately, my dad built a business and we didn't have time for the hawk. Um, quite an interesting thing though, I was actually, at, at the time, I was the youngest hawker in the UK. <laughs> so I had to have a really tiny little special glove made and everything. Um, 
but it was just back then it was quite cheap to fly a hawk I, I mean it's something I've not really been in touch with for a lot of years um, I mean I'd love to I'd love to go out and, and maybe a friend of mine who flies hawks now invited me out um, and I'd like to do that again but obviously the kind of hunting I do now is so <laughs> different and they are quite time consuming so I just wouldn't have the time you know to, to dedicate to flying one now well, I feel like that's something you've got to really develop a relationship with the hawk and everything. It, I mean, that's like a long-term commitment to do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, the, I mean, the habits of the birds and stuff, the, the guy who sold the hawk to my father was quite worried at how small I was, you know, if I could, like, handle the weight of the hawk and stuff. Um, but my main job, I, I flew the hawk a little bit, but my main job was the ferret handler. I was the ferret girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's going to stick in my head from now on. That's that's what you're going to be in my head from now on. <laughs> <laughs> the ferret girl. Um, yeah, just, just something as a young girl that I really enjoyed. I absolutely love animals. I've always been like really animal mad, complete animal nut. So when I was little to have this little entourage of ferrets to me was just, <laughs> and they stink. Have you, I don't know if you've ever, ever had, like, had a ferret. That's the one thing I've heard about them is that they stink to high heaven. So they give off mu like a musk odor um, and they stink. And I used to sneak them into bed with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my mum wasn't too pleased about this tomboyish kind of hunting and bringing ferrets home, but, it was um, cool. I was going to say, I was looking through your Instagram, and you have this picture uh, from a, a little bit ago. It's one of you now holding, it looks like a baby fox, and then uh, one of you as a little girl, side by side with one of you as a little girl, and I don't know if that's, uh, I don't know what you're holding there, but some sort of either rodent or ferret or fox or something, but yeah, uh, <laughs> not much has changed. No. Uh, so what uh, then? What takes you from the little girl running hawks and ferrets with your with your dad up and up until now? Um, a little more big game hunting and birds and. Well, as I said, Dad kind of had to give the give the hawk hawk up when he um, kind of his his business took off. And for about 10 years, um, my mum got her claws into me and turned me into a ballerina. <laughs> <laughs> so my sister and I did, um, we were dancers and we did kind of classical ballet and tap and modern, but I was never really, it was never really what I wanted to do. I've always had like a wild kind of boisterous tomboyish side. So in my kind of early 20s I started horse riding and going to the local stables and that was the two worlds kind of hunting and riding over here and just the, the kind of rural scene are quite interlinked. Um, my dad later on in life started shooting for Great Britain so he's uh, quite a good clay shooter. Okay. So he started doing the international circuit and he was always begging me to take shooting up but I just, at the time, it kind of didn't appeal to me. Um, and then in my mid-twenties, I just decided that, I think it was all the nagging from dad, actually. Um, and I decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm actually going to have a go at this. But in the weeks previous, actually, um, the actual target shooting, he, he brought a little air rifle home, but it was a handheld um, so what you guys would have like as a pistol, like in the like a, a hood gun, <laughs> like, a gangster, like a gangster gun. Um, and he brought this little Weebly and Scott um, home. I was out in the yard and he said to me, oh, you know, if you can hit all of these, you can have this air rifle. Um, and I remember I, I did it, won the air rifle from him. I took it home and I used to sit out in my garden and shoot the pegs off of my washing line you know like the little things that you hang clothes up okay um and just became really i i think i fancied i don't know if i fancied myself as lara croft or annie oakley <laughs> <laughs> but i just really enjoyed just the feeling of of, of hitting targets it, it just i really enjoyed it 
and so decided after all dad's nagging um, to try clay shooting. So took myself off to a training day and I didn't actually tell my dad at the time. I just snuck off and did it and fell in love with it. <laughs> so now um, I've got to, I've got to say as an American uh, looking through your Instagram, like seeing you out shooting clays and everything and, it is the most British looking thing I have ever seen. <laughs> this is like when you, when you talk to an American, at least, at least you talk to me and somebody talks about like hunting in England. This is like with the cap and the, and the, the kind of the, <laughs> the pants and the high boots and everything. This is like exactly what I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the stereotypical English it's very... Yeah, it's really funny you say that because at home um, they have a nickname for me and they actually call me um, Americari <laughs> <laughs> because they say I'm so Ameri- like Americanized um, with camo and, you know, ball caps. And we have obviously very tradition, kind of a lot of heritage and tradition surround- surrounding our hunting and shooting over here. And I do a lot of um, driven pheasant shooting. And that's the traditional dress is kind of tweed. And and it's actually one of the sides that I like about hunting and shooting. You know that you get to dress up and there's a little bit of tradition involved. I think that's quite nice. It's well, it's really neat. You know, and I say I say that kind of laughing, but there's something very, like you said, a lot of tradition. And it's there's something very romantic about the the whole thing and that connection with, I mean, you know, hundreds of years of people doing this stuff. And, uh, it's, it's a very neat thing. And it's, you know, it's something I've always wanted to, wanted to try out sometime in my life. And I mean, you know, like you said, the driven pheasant shooting, um, the, I don't know, I've always wanted to, to run hounds for foxes. Uh, that's always kind of been a, a thing. It's just, it's a very different, perspective than hunting out here it's and it seems like a very social thing as well yeah yeah everyone gets together um and it is very social and it is i've been really looking in my in my career in my short career to to travel and to experience different hunting traditions and styles and different ways that people do things um and I feel quite lucky to have been able to do that. And I think I was in um, France last week for Wild Boar and they have um, a very kind of big ceremony um, respecting the animals and respecting the, the hunters. And it's all very traditional and, and it's and that's a social event. Everyone gets together and you say thank you for the to the beaters, the guys who drive the game. You say thank you to the animals for you know, and it is a nice way of doing things. But I also like what you guys do as well. I think while there's a lot of different traditions and different ways of doing things, I think each country, you know, has their own. I love what you guys do with the way that your um, kind of national parks and the public lands you you guys have over there is just mind blowing. So I think each country has something kind of special and unique. And I suppose ours is um, silly hats. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but it's, you know, it's such a, I don't know, some about connecting. That's a lot of the reason why I enjoy bow hunting is I feel like it, you know, albeit my compound bow is a, a little bit different than the bows people were shooting, you know, decades and a hundred years ago, whatever that is. But, uh, something about that I feel like really connects me with kind of those roots and it's you know it's the same thing it's a it's a different style of hunting and to be honest you don't need to go out for that in full you know head-to-toe camo with your face painted and and everything else it's a it's a different style it's a different method and it's fantastic because it does give you that connection and I feel like it's I always thought it was interesting too, because, um, you know, this kind of ties in, I guess, something with, uh, something 
I know we wanted to talk about. Uh, the UK has such a deep history of hunting and those traditions surrounding that. And it was, you know, something the gentleman did. And it was very a very proper thing to do. How do you think that's changed from then to now? Have you seen a shift away from that? Oh, absolutely. And and that's something that um, I, I've struggled with myself to, because to promote something and to make something feel inclusive to everyone, which is what, to me, the outdoors and hunting and shooting should be. The problem in the UK, we don't have what you guys have in the States. We don't have public land. Is it something like 640 million acres you guys have of public lands to hunt over? Something like yeah. that, yeah. Which just blow just blows my mind and just makes me want to pack a bag and move out there. But in the UK, it was very different. Um, driven shooting and shooting itself came from so the big stately homes, um, and it was just a thing that kind of the lords and ladies did, and it was quite kind of a bit of an upper class sport. And it years and years ago, it, I wouldn't have had access to that. And in the UK, you used to have to be invited to shoot driven game, where now over the years, so the estates where driven shoots take place, they've had to kind of open up um, to more people because these huge houses that they now have, um, someone has to pay for the upkeep of them. So they've kind of commercialized and monetized on driven shooting um, as a way to, to make the land that obviously that they have to upkeep to pay for itself. And there's, with that and with the popularity of shooting growing, it's also then opened up smaller shoots around those big shoots, which gives everyone, um, you know, the opportunity to kind of get out there and have a go. I mean, it would be amazing if we did have the public land hunting like you guys do. But it's just, it's not how it works out here. We don't have, we don't have the same land maps. Um, it's definitely changing though and more people more people want to start shooting and it did used to as i say be perceived as kind of a, a very kind of closed knit sport where you know um a bit elitist um that's definitely changed there's, there's people from all kinds of backgrounds who shoot now um in the uk which i think is fantastic and going back to how i originally started before i went off on a tangent that's one of the things I struggle with, with the way we dress. So I sometimes wonder if it's giving the right image, you know, if if it is a nice image to give across for people to keep that tradition or if it gives a little bit of a kind of, yeah, a bit of a, an elitist image to be so kind of formally dressed. It's an interesting kind of dilemma. I see, I see your point with that, where it's, you do want to make it, as widely inclusive as possible, but without completely abandoning those traditions. But are those all traditions you want to honor? Or that's a that's a tough dilemma. Mm. And um, I mean, <laughs> British British people can be really kind of stubborn and stuck in their ways, and they don't like things to change, or they don't like people kind of. Um, you know, changing established traditions and stuff. And I remember um, the first Highland stag. So up in Scotland, you have the Highlands up there. Um, obviously, it's very hilly. And I went up there to hunt stags, red stags. And obviously, you're doing a lot of walking. There's a lot of incline. And this was maybe six years ago when, I, when I'd started kind of big game hunting. And whenever I'm going to go hunting, I always think, right, what's the most practical thing to wear? You know, what am I going to be able to hunt harder? You know, I, I want to make sure that I can optimize the chance of success. And that includes obviously what you wear. So I went up there with some kind of early season camo pants and, you know, like a sports top. So when the photographs of this hunting were released in the UK, um, I got so much kind of so many bad comments from people who um, thought that I'd kind of done the wrong thing by wearing what I'd wore. They were like, oh, you know, you should wear tweed when you go on the hill. It's tradition. So I think we've got to be careful that we don't do that to people. And 
and let people have the choice of what to wear. I don't think we could we should kind of push people out, you know, too much. Well, that's a that's a big thing for me. Is you know we talked about it earlier is finding ways to be as inclusive as possible and bring new people into hunting people that may not necessarily be from backgrounds that are as traditionally, you know, associated with hunting people from the cities, people from different families with that don't have a background in it. And, uh, it's kind of a similar situation where if you tell someone you have, you have to do it this way, you have to have these things, you have to, wear this gear and I do that it's it's creating barriers that really just eliminate a lot of people from from doing something that honestly we can't afford to alienate people from I don't you know I know in the United States we're losing thousands of hunters every year percentage wise uh we're not you know we're not getting going to have the support of hunting that we always do and so it's important to look to new groups of people who may, you know, and reach out and find ways to be inclusive. Obviously we don't want to, we have to decide what's important and we obviously can't sacrifice those key essential bits, but is how you dress going to be the most essential part? Maybe not, you know, maybe to some people it is and, and, you know, good for them. They can, they can wear that traditional clothing, but if it's the difference between expanding hunting to more people, uh, if they want to wear a, a t-shirt and a pair of comfortable pants. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and, I, and I've shot with some of the best dressed um, people in the world of shooting, I reckon. And it doesn't make them the best shots and it doesn't make them the most respectful of quarry and it doesn't make them the safest people to hunt with. So I think we should focus more on you know, getting people into the outdoors, getting people respecting quarry, getting people um, respecting the hunt and the environment that they hunt in um, and being safe and being trained and, you know, honing them skills rather than caring too much, like you say, about what we wear. What we wear makes for good pictures sometimes, but it doesn't always make for good hunts. So... On that note, we're going to take a quick pause just to hear a word from one of my partners. All right, y'all. We all know that it's possible to get into the backcountry and take that big buck or bull with a set of surplus store camo and a Walmart tent. But let's face it, quality gear can often make the difference between checking out early due to sheer misery and pushing through just a little bit further to find success. But all this gear can start to add up, and that's why I'd recommend shopping at Black Ovis. They carry high-performance hunting gear from all the top brands like Vortex, Crispy, Sitka, First Light, Mountain Ops, and Stone Glacier, often at a nicely discounted rate. I've yet to find anywhere that offers a more reasonable price, plus their shipping is free and their customer service is unmatched. Additionally, by making the choice to shop at Black Ovis, you're supporting a company that's involved in and gives back to the hunting community. It's where I do all my gear shopping. And whether you're just looking to replace a few items or build out a brand new kit, Black Ovis is the one-stop shop for super solid hunting gear. Additionally, you can help support Living Country in the City by doing all your gear shopping at Black Ovis. Visit livingcountryinthecity.com slash blackovis, bookmark the link, and use it whenever you do your shopping. We are back. So, we're talking a little bit about perceptions of hunting, uh... Another thing I imagine you deal with often is uh, I know between the shooting and the hunting, there is also definitely a large contingent of folks out in the UK and just abroad in general who uh, who aren't the biggest fans of what you do, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, the, the aunties. And there's one... Uh, one thing, you know, I noticed, uh, we talked about it a little bit, but I noticed on your Instagram profile, uh, you talk about the PETA model. Yeah, so this um, this was a TV show that I did, um, God, it's two years ago now, it doesn't feel like it, it's, uh, it's gone really quick. Um, basically, I was approached by a TV production company to take part in a documentary. Now, I'm always really wary when 
you get approached by TV production companies because you just think, oh, come on, guys, you know, especially in the UK, they don't portray hunting very well in the media, like ever. So I was very careful at first. And if someone follows you around with a camera and they can then take that and kind of edit it any way that you want. So I've always said no. But the producer called me and said, um, you know, we're going to do this documentary. We want to feature a hunter from the UK. We've been following your profile for quite a little while. Um, We've actually read quite a lot of your writing. We really like what you do. And we think that this will make really interesting um, kind of TV because we're actually going to couple you with someone who's anti-hunting and kind of let you take her on a journey. Now, they, when they revealed like who it was, um, <laughs> that's when I kind of decided, yeah, I really want to do this. Jodie Marsh is basically, she was a glamour model in the UK. So she modelled naked for Peter at one point because she's a really, really passionate um, animal rights activist. But she's also done, she did bodybuilding. She set herself a goal that she wanted to be um, like a world champion bodybuilder. So she did it and she became a world champion bodybuilder. And she started doing documentaries, so investigative documentaries. Um, So she'd basically take a really controversial kind of shocking topic and she'd go out there and explore it. Now, the hunting one was going to be really, really difficult because it's um, she's like genuinely as a person, such a huge animal rights activist. And so for her, it was the one topic that that was the closest to home. So (laughs) the TV producers, first of all, I... I (laughs) I made them come up to my home and have dinner with me and I took them to the local to the local restaurant and first of all I, I kind of looked at what they all ordered and made sure they ordered meat <laughs> <laughs> but no they were really cool and I went down to their offices and the guy who owned the production company actually had a few African trophy animals on his wall so I was like this is yeah this is this is going to be a great opportunity to to undo some of the misunderstandings surrounding hunting and to actually take someone. Um, and I believed that if everything that I kind of stood for and everything that I believe in was right, then I wouldn't have a problem kind of taking someone else on that journey. Um, and that's basically what happened. I spent about 10 days with Jodie And it started out where it was kind of all, you know, the gloves were off. She was just really gunning from from me from the start. She was like, in some of the outtake videos that I've actually seen, she was so, so, so like angry and just exactly how you imagine aunties to be. You know, I'm sure you'll have seen comments that female hunters or hunters in general get online. So this is what I was kind of faced with in person. Um, She's a really strong, strong willed and kind of outspoken person, a little bit like myself. Um, So it was a challenge, but I spent 10 days with her. And to begin with, we were at loggerheads. And I just basically, I, I was very honest with her. I took her to my home. I cooked, she's a vegetarian, so she doesn't eat meat. Um, but I cooked uh, venison dinner for my family. I took her to my friend and did some pigeon shooting. My friend's a farmer, so he has to protect his crops. Um, and we just, just along the way, kind of educated her about what we're doing, why we do it. And the show ended where I basically um, went out and hunted a deer, a muntjac deer in the UK. And Jodie came along. So I actually shot the deer in front of her. Um, So the show kind of culminated in that. And she actually, at the end of it, completely U-turned and changed her mind about what she thought about hunters and 
all of her ideas about what hunters were and what we did and that we were monsters and bloodthirsty psychopaths. Um, and she actually completely changed her mind um, after the journey and on TV actually said that and said it to all of her fans and said, you know, I actually understand what hunters do. Um, and she completely kind of did a U-turn on her beliefs, which was really cool. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, I was gonna, I was gonna ask, is there uh, somewhere online where we could watch the, where people can watch the documentary if they, if they wanted? Yeah, it's still, you can get it on Amazon um, online video. Um, you can download it. You have to search for I'll probably post the link in my Instagram. Um, I'll get you to do the same uh, when obviously the podcast comes out, but it's on Amazon Prime still, so you can download it and watch it online. So it's still there. But yeah, it was just a really, really kind of just a really cool, something I'm extremely proud of. Um, and still to this day, Jodie, I mean, she's got, I think the most important thing about doing that was the fact that all of her fans and followers and she has millions um are all the exact kind of people who needed to be educated about hunting and the truth behind hunting rather than the propaganda and the sound bites of you know like i say bloodthirsty pillars they're all kind of vegans vegetarians animal rights activists um anti-hunting anti-shooting so for someone who's, um, you know, an idol, kind of a spokesperson, a celebrity spokesperson for that, who for years and years and years has, you know, s spoken out about hunting to speak almost for in defense of hunting, just just was totally mind blowing. Um, and yeah, it was it was hard work, um, you know, to get her to that point. But again, it was just believing in believing in what we do as hunters and and if if I didn't believe in what we do as hunters I, I wouldn't be a hunter anyway so it was just a really really cool moment that's so important I think people don't realize that the effect that uh, working on one person just uh, that one-to-one -one connection can have and and yeah, obviously not every single person we talk to is going to be a you know celebrity with millions of followers and and stuff like that, but you know every every person we talk to, you know, has three or four friends and the change is exponential. You know, those three or four friends turn into 9 to 16 and and it just grows from there. And you never know when that one person you just randomly happen to be talking to, you know, out in nature or something, that person you run into that asks you what you're doing. And, you know, rather than just waving it off and walking away, if you take the time to sit and educate them, it, it can turn into something bigger than you realize. I mean, I, I remember I was out for a hike. I was in, uh, I would go for hikes up to the observatory in Los Angeles, um, most every morning and uh, I was I was sitting up at the observatory, just kind of minding my own business, and had my pack on. You know, I was, I was taking a quick rest, grabbing a a, a drink, and um, I'm listening to this group of tourists. Uh, funny enough, they were from the UK. Um, this group of tourists <laughs> next to me, and uh, one of them. Was he wearing tweed? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guessed by the accents. No, no tweed for this group. They were in uh, they were in scandalous hiking clothing. Um, but, uh, you know, they're, they're talking and, and one of the, one of the girls is talking and I'm just kind of half listening and I hear her say, uh, I'll never forget it because I just rolled my eyes so hard. I almost fell over. Um, she looks at her friends and she's like, is there another word for the, you know, is there another phrase I can use instead of killing two birds with one stone? Like, I understand what it means, but I really don't like it because it condones violence against animals. And I just, I just, oh my gosh, I just couldn't even handle it. I rolled my eyes so hard, I just about fell over. Um, and, you know, I kind of stopped paying attention to what they're talking about. But uh, I was walking past and they waved me down really quick. And they were just, they were asking if there was a local coffee shop. And I, so I, I kind of pointed them 
in a couple directions. And so they start walking down and they take the long way down this hill. I go, I always go this little back shortcut route that's a little steeper and rockier. So I end up, they leave and I go a few minutes afterwards and we end up running into each other again. And so we're talking and they, uh, they're like, Oh, what are you training for? You know, I was obviously had the backpack on and had my workout clothes and I'm like, well, I'm not sure if you're going to like me after I tell you this or not. But I, I ended up spending the next, you know, 15, 20 minutes as we're walking back. You know, I told him what I was doing. And the second I told him what I was training for, the, the girl, the two birds with one stone girl, uh, <laughs> looked at me like I had just sprouted horns and a devil tail and was carrying a pitchfork. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we sat and I answered their questions and I, I talked them through the whole North America, the concept of the uh, North American conservation model and how hunting is is very regulated here, run by biologists, and and how it contributes to the overall well being of of wildlife. And they by the end they were thanking me. They were they were you know walking away. They're like you know thank you so much for explaining this. You know we never knew this about hunters. We didn't know this. We just thought it was a bunch of drunk rednecks you know drinking beers and shooting deers. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's exactly that. And you know, and you never know where that where that leads. And it's and and it's it is so frustrating. It's like we we don't have a voice. It, the media now just likes to kind of report on bad news and demonize things and you know doom and gloom and no one. There's so there's so much data out there. Um, it's there it's the truth it's not you know it's not a fairy story you know hunting is conservation that they they see that as just something that like you say rednecks say to you know to kind of condone the murdering of animals and it's it's just so frustrating because I, I haven't met anyone anyone who's kind of gone against me um I take the time to respond. I'm eloquent. I'm polite. If someone's abusive to me, I, I delete and block them because I, you know, but if someone takes the time to ask a question, I always give my time and, you know, answer that question as honestly as I can and kind of try and educate people. And I haven't met anyone yet that's not been kind of like you say, oh, wow, we did, we didn't know that we assumed we we thought there's just unwilling ignorance out there about hunting and if we if hunters had more more of a voice a louder voice more opportunities in the media more opportunities in the mainstream media um to kind of get those facts and get that information out there so many more people would understand and and kind of not demonize hunters as they do and it's really frustrating, the celebrity thing. It's one of the reasons why it was a huge risk for me to do the TV show, because as I say, it could have gone, they could have edited it and made me, you know, kind of ruined my life. <laughs> um, but it's why I kind of grasped that opportunity, because we just don't get those opportunities very often. And it's just so important that when they do come along to to obviously try try your hardest. Even to this day, Jodie, still, because her belief is now so, so strong, um, she still to this day kind of tweets every now and again and, you know, kind of condones what I do. And it's, it's cool. I always say, if put me in a room with anyone <laughs> and I will change their mind um, <laughs> about it because you, you simply cannot get away from science and facts you you cannot get away from it and like you were saying about your the conservation model and the um the fact that hunting is kind of at the core of um the the state's conservation model the the national parks and how you guys run things and the tag system and the fact that wildlife biologists are at the heart of all of that now before i came to british columbia hunting bears it's something that I'd heard American friends and, you know, I, I'd heard you guys say it, but that's just someone saying something. I'd never actually experienced it for myself. 
And it was a really beautiful moment for me when I hunted bears in British Columbia. There was actually a biologist in camp with us. Um, and I spent hours, you know, discussing the models, um, you know, the the black bear that I was out there to hunt. We were discussing the numbers and how they affect the moose and caribou and just everything. And it was just a, it, it was a super, super cool experience for me to see it firsthand. Um, and while we were hunting, the the wildlife officers, you know, checking tags. And I think you guys have got it so right out there. Um, and you've got something really cool to, to PR. Uh, it's just getting the opportunities. No, I think it's definitely, I mean, you know, the proof is in the pudding. It's You look at the history of a lot of these animals that were on the verge of extinction because of unregulated hunting, because of... Uh, commercial hunting and and just you know our our homesteading and and all of that that we've done and uh, so many of these species that are now almost so overpopulated they're a nuisance like you look at like white-tailed deer as a matter of fact you know they were they were very close to to (laughs) not being around anymore Uh, elk and i think wood ducks and antelope and all these animals that are now just fantastic populations and and are are returning to areas where they haven't been in decades it's it's really exciting to see and you know i mean what you were saying about you know just kind of changing those hearts and minds that's knowing your facts is very important i think but kind of what you did is picking your battles i think is also important too where it's very easy to go one way or the other. It's easy to sit there and try and take the time to respond to every single person and, and talk it out. But it's also easy to go the other way to to where you just immediately get defensive and snap back at people or you just immediately do nothing but, but uh, block and delete everybody. But I think you need to find that happy medium to where, you know, you can't waste your time. Not everyone is going to be changeable. Um, there are always going to be people who are just there to spew some hate. They're not going to listen to any facts. They don't care. Um, they're just there to cause trouble. And those are the people, you know, you need to use a little bit of judgment and those are the people. Yeah. You just need to block them and move on with your day, you know, save your energy, save your time for someone that's actually curious and asking a question or, you know, you can always you can always tell you know it's like the people that come to spew hate typically typically it'll either be a fake profile or it'll be a blocked or private or something but those people that come in and they ask a question or you can tell they're they don't like you but you know they're they were they're responding back and forth you know save save your time for those people and uh you know i think pick your battles and like you said don't don't just snap back. Uh, know your facts. Know your arguments. Be eloquent. Be patient. Um, think about the larger things that are at stake rather than just your immediate pride and desire to be right. <laughs> I know I've been yeah. there. I'm guilty. <laughs> I'm guilty of, of it on both sides of the equation. Yeah, I mean, we're human at the end of the day. And, you know... If I responded to every single anti or every curious person or everyone who kind of questioned what I did, I think what we forget sometimes is what what we're doing is legal and it's legal for a reason. Um, and, And we have no obligation to kind of reply to people, respond to these people. And, you know, we're not on their profile asking them, you know, what they had for tea and why did they do this and why did they go out at the weekend? Why did they drink? Why... You know, we, we, we're not questioning their life choices. So sometimes we have to remember that, you know, we're, we're free people and hunting is legal. Like, get over it sometimes. <laughs> but the way I like to do it is just to think that, you know, society's become so removed from it. Again, that, that phrase, it's unwilling ignorance. And in the UK recently, we've had a few episodes where they've... Um, they they recently they didn't renew the hunting rights on one of the large areas of land and they also banned um shooting in wales on public land which is used to support some of our driven pheasant hunting so 
so there is a need to kind of educate people and make sure that we don't start losing um, the right to shoot and hunt. So sometimes the way I do it, and um, you, you might see some of the pieces that I've written actually went, I can't say viral, but might have been shared. You know, I think one of them was shared kind of 10, 12,000 times. Um, and I took a question from an auntie and I answered it in, I, it's called A Letter to an Auntie. And I answered very honestly and just, just wrote a bit of a story about who I am, who my beliefs are and why they are quite similar um, to that of an animal lover because we're animal lovers too. And that response, so rather than, than me having to kind of respond and educate every kind of person who comes there, I just pin that response there and a lot of people do read it. So it kind of kills two birds with one stone. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it answers a lot of questions from a lot of different people in one foul swoop. Um, and, you know, hunters actually come to me. I'm, I'm very... I'm a very passionate writer, or as my dad likes to say, you just always like being right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's not being argumentative. I, I'm so passionate about hunting. And I'm so passionate about animals and wildlife, and I don't want to lose it. So if I can write something and kind of put my heart where my heart and my sleeve and put it out there, and quite a few hunters come to me and say, we, we use your letter or we use that article you wrote, or we use the Jodie Marsh show to explain to our friends who don't understand hunting. So it's kind of become an educational tool for other hunters to use, which which is something I'm really, really proud of, which is pretty cool. No, that's really exciting. So you've hunted all over the world so far, it seems like. <laughs> you've You've done waterfowling. You've done, I don't know, uh, you've done the driven pheasant hunting. I don't know, do you guys call that upland game over there? Or I know that's what we call it here in the States. So our version of upland game would be what we call rough shooting so, or walked up shooting. So it's where you're walking over land and flushing the pheasants just yourself and then shooting them, obviously, as they get up. Um, driven pheasant is obviously where they are driven over a line of guns. Okay. So you've done that. You've done red stag and deer and bear in in Canada. I saw. I was I was uh, looking through your profile. I saw you did Audad in Spain, the Barbary sheep. Yes. I, I've actually I've got a I've got an Audad tag in New Mexico here in the states in February that I'm very very excited about. Um, but so you've done all of this different hunting. Do you have any favorites? Anything stick out as a... Hmm. Um, this is a really tough question now, and this is a question that everyone always asks in, in an interview. And it's really tough because I, um, I went to Africa in March this year and hunted Cape Buffalo. Oh, I've heard that's so, pretty amazing. Yeah, that is... It's just on another level. But So Cape Buffalo is one of... The kind of the top of my bucket list um and i expected to be doing it in maybe i don't know like five ten years or something like it was going to be the last thing i did before you know i i kind of hung up my international hunting boots um so when people ask me this question like what do you what you what do you want to hunt next what's your favorite thing to hunt it's probably going to be the cape buffalo for kind of the experience, the, just the type of animal that they are. It's just, it's a completely different kind of hunting when you're hunting dangerous game. My favourite place to hunt was um, Canada, British Columbia. And that's, for me, the North American wilderness and just that kind of hunting, like, you cannot beat it. It's, you cannot beat it. I think I lost um, a stone. I don't, I, I don't know if you guys, you do, you guys do pound. So it would be, I think, isn't it like 14 or 17 pounds, pounds, something like that? Yeah. In a stone. So I lost that in a week in, well, in six days of hunting bears over there. And that's really the kind of hunting that I love. Like the hunting that you've like, you, it's kicked your ass. You've really had to work for it. 
you know you you kind of you've had to put the effort in and you know t- at times you think you're going to die and at times you think you're not going to get there and <laughs> you know that for me is where the real reward and and that's the real appeal of hunting to me so definitely if you could put cape buffaloes in north america <laughs> oh jeez <laughs> 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 then that would be ideal but the, i don't know the if there was a cape buffalo that could survive up in the rocky <laughs> mountains i'm not sure i'd want to hunt it that thing would be scary as hell I, it I'll, would be the ultimate though <laughs> I'll, I'll hunt a grizzly before a uh, brown bear before i'm ready to hunt a cape buffalo <laughs> in the in the mountains jeez <laughs> i don't think i actually realized when i went out for my cape buffalo like how big a deal it was um i'm just one of these people who just you know I'm, I'm a Yorkshire girl, you, you know, we're, we're quite tough people anyway. I was part of my life, my, my childhood, I actually grew up in a porter cabin, so that was our home. You know, mum and dad back then were kind of so poor that that's that was our family home. We grew up very, I won't say we had a hard life, but we we grew up kind of learning you get on with it. So when I go hunting now, that's the ethos I take with me. You know, whatever whatever this hunt is going to throw at you, you pull your big girl pants up and you get on with it. And when I came home and I, I went to my taxidermist to to actually see the progress on my bear, um, and he's hunted everything all over the world as well. He's such a mad keen hunter. And he and I said to him, oh, you know, would, would you do Cape Buffalo? And he was like, absolutely not. And I was like, why not? And he was like, no way, it's too dangerous. And I thought, wow. And it kind of hits home, you know, oh, wow, what what you've actually been out there and kind of done. (laughs) Um, I think my mum thinks that I'm too brave sometimes, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's a a mom's job. I know know mine always uh, sends me plenty of worried messages right before I go on a hunt. But... (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's your favorite. What's what's on the what's left on the bucket list? What are you still excited to get out and hunt? Moose, easy, easy. Moose is actually that's why I said Cape Buffalo is one of my top because moose is just right up there for me. And the place where I hunted bear in BC, they have um, moose hunting out there. So I think that's where I'm going to return to next year. I know the camp. I know the guys there. Um, but moose definitely. That's awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I've watched a few few people take moose this year, and it's just it's always been high on my list. That's it's never quite been number one, but uh, it's definitely one I have to get done off the bucket list for sure. And just this year, I feel like I've seen a lot of people with moose hunts this year really being successful, and so it's been getting me super super amped up about it i feel the same because i was going to go back this year um and it just didn't didn't work out um with other hunts that i have coming up in the uk um and then like you say you just i keep seeing like these monster 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 bulls coming on my timeline and i'm like no (laughs) what's at the top of your list oh uh alaskan brown bear that is Something same kind of same kind of thing you're talking about with the Cape Buffalo, where it's something about hunting dangerous game is, I don't know, and just it, it adds that extra. I don't know if it's it's not extra pressure, but something excitement, energy to the hunt, and a brown bear. They're just so massive, and it's like to me that's kind of the in my mind that's like the pinnacle of it. It's the yeah the pinnacle of hunting in my mind to take one with a bow. Oh my gosh. So that's, that's, that's my number one. Other than that, it's, I'm, I'm obsessed with elk. I've gone, gone out two years, been unsuccessful both years. This year uh, I was out in Colorado and it was the same kind of hunt. It was, it was an kicker for sure. (laughs) Um, you're, you're probably, I don't know what, what's the elevation like in Yorkshire? Oh, we, is it so the uk's other than kind of the highlands it's quite flat but 40 minutes from here we have a thing called the waltz so it's kind of ice age um kind of valleys that were carved um Mm -hmm. and that's where we do a lot of our pheasant shooting so if you imagine kind of banks um i wouldn't like to say how how kind of high and that's where they kind of drive 
pheasants from the top of. But hunting-wise, the the kind of elevations um, when, when you're actually climbing uh, at any kind of elevations is Scotland. That's where you go to Scotland for, or Wales. Like I'm going to Ireland at the end of this month, the beginning of November, actually, to hunt seeker stags. Okay. And they have some pretty cool hills over there, but nothing like what you guys have with your mountain ranges and the Rockies and everything, like nothing like that. But so you're used to, I mean, you're used to living pretty much at sea level, though. So you probably have a similar problem once you start getting up <laughs> up into the really high yeah. mountain ranges. The air gets really, really thin up there. Yeah. That was a, that was definitely a struggle this uh, this last year. The lungs were burning pretty severely the entire trip. So you need to that was a elevation training. <laughs> I know. I I just need to move to high elevation. Is what I need to do. I just need to live up there, and then uh, everything else is is easy past that. <laughs> but that was one of the that's that was one of the things that I loved about uh, and that I love about hunting the fact that you actually get to prepare and train for different situations, different terrains. That in itself a really cool challenge, and a, and I think a really cool lifestyle. That something that you're going to go and hunt maybe in six months, a year's time is actually affecting your life right now in a positive way. So be- before I hunted my Cape Buffalo, I, I was I hunted him with um, a Kriegoff double rifle, a four four seventy double. So obviously double rifles have the um, the really heavy barrels, and the area where I hunted was flat. And I was in the gym in the weeks before and the months before working out and training my arms because I knew this this gun's going to be heavy and I'm going to be carrying it for hours and hours and hours on end in heat. And people were laughing at me saying, oh, you know, why why are you hunting? Why are you, tra- why are you training? You know, you're on flat ground. And no one really understood, like, what I was doing. Um, and then the PH, when he was like, you're the first person who's, you know, carried their rifle all day long, you know, without needing help or guiding so I was like, ha! <laughs> it's, it's a, it, it is a cool... I wish I'd have trained more for my bear um, in BC. I, I think I underestimated how tough the terrain was out there. So I, don't I think, feel on death. <laughs> I honestly don't think it matters how much you train to a certain extent. It, something about the, the high Rocky Mountains, man, at least, at least in the States. I don't know about BC, but... It's just always going to kick your butt. It doesn't, I mean, short of living there 24-7 and and walking those hills every day, I don't, you know, I, I don't think there's anything that can fully prepare you for for those rocky slopes and, and those steep elevations. But you can, you can get as close as you possibly can otherwise. Yeah. But, so, as we're winding down... Um, you know, we talked about, uh, like I said, I like this podcast to be really directed at people who may not traditionally be from hunting backgrounds or from places that really lend themselves to to hunting. If somebody uh, somebody came up to you and said, you know, I really want to get into this. I, I really want to get into hunting, but I just I feel intimidated. I don't know where to start. Uh, what advice would you give that person? What I do try and do, um, time permitting, is offer that offer to kind of mentor people. I think that's important. The first thing I always say to people is, go for it. You'll, you will never, ever regret, you know, if it's having a go at clay shooting, if it's getting into the field to fork side of things, you'll never regret it. Um, it's not always going to be for everyone. I know people who've kind of tried bird shooting or hunting and they just say, you know, it's not for them, but just to go for it and to, to make sure that they respect that they are going after life quarry. So respect, you know, respect life, train, make sure that you're a good marksman, you know, your marksmanship's good, go to your local gun club, go to your local rifle club and, I think people are actually surprised, I know in the UK, how many shooting grounds there is and how accessible it is to go and learn to shoot, to go and learn to hunt. Um, 
it's out there and just to kind of look for it and, and just to get out there and have a go definitely um and just make sure that you do like i say go through the proper channels make sure everything you're doing is legal you know i know in the states you have laws on limits and tags and different species make sure that you you know all of the information anyone could ever want is online now so so get online go onto the relevant state's website and check the you know the legislation and there are some really great groups out there there are women's hunting groups you know there are social hunting groups so just to just to and obviously you guys have the nra um that people can join like we have the countryside alliance over here um the deer initiative there's just so much i don't think anyone nowadays has any excuse um that they can't learn or start something new so just to just to go for it just to make that first step and and go for it because you won't regret it fantastic well if people wanted to follow along on all the adventures where can they find you online so i conduct most of my business these days on instagram (laughs) because i find it a much more positive place um i am rachel carry hunting on there i'm also on facebook i don't tend to update my facebook page anymore but people can follow me on my private page um, I'm just in the middle of writing a game cookery book. So when that launches, my website will launch too. So, but Instagram for now and all of my updates will, will kind of go on there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to hop on. Uh, I know it is the almost the end of the day where you're at, I guess, or at least dinner time. <laughs> it's right in the morning for me, but thanks again so much for taking the time. No, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. All right, y'all, that'll do it for episode 85 of Living Country in the City. Another big thank you to Rachel Carey for taking the time out of her day to hop on and share a little bit with us. Make sure y'all head on over to the show notes page at livingcountryinthecity.com slash 85. Check out links to Rachel's socials as well as everything else we talked about in today's episode. Also, make sure you all head on over to that support page, leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher, maybe buy some merch, or check out my Patreon page. That's livingcountryinthecity.com slash support. Join the Living Country in the City team, and there's lots of ways that I try and give back to y'all. But in the meantime, keep it country, y'all. Thank y'all for listening to Living Country in the City. Get show notes and check out the blog, product reviews, events, and more at livingcountryinthecity.com.